Blighty Thank God is based on the diary our family discovered my late father, Ron Chapman, wrote in 1943 when he was a young RAF pilot serving in the Middle East and Italy. In this grave hour... I'm Neil Chapman and a former journalist. The podcast highlights the stories I uncovered when I researched his diary, along with other historical sources. In the summer of 1943, my father helped run Baghdad Airport for the RAF. Enduring sweltering heat... He coordinated visits of VIPs, important visitors, passing through Iraq's capital city. Politicians, royalty, military chiefs, and one very famous entertainer. Noel Coward was an English playwright, actor and singer. At the time, he was on a morale-boosting tour, entertaining the troops across the Middle East. And another VIP my father encountered was Lord Louis Mountbatten, on his way to take over command of the campaign to defeat the Japanese in Southeast Asia. Related to the British royal family, Mountbatten found himself ordered to sit on the throne by one of my father's friends. On July 11th, 1943... My father learned he was to transfer to Baghdad Airport from RAF Habania. In his diary, it is one occasion when he gives his somewhat cynical reaction to events elsewhere in the world as the war raged. His granddaughter, Bethan. Sunday, July 11th, up at 7.30 in Hadbrecher and down to flight. I go to Baghdad tomorrow morning on detachment. We are in Sicily and walloping the joint. Canadians are there, about time they earned their wages. When he arrived at Baghdad, it was nearly 50 degrees centigrade. It turns out these were record temperatures, only repeated in the city next century as global warming kicked in. But on July the 21st, 1943, it wasn't just VIPs that could cause temperatures to rise. Bags of activity, a political prisoner going on a Dakota. Bags of flamp and panic, temperature 121 degrees here. At the end of August, temperatures were still brutal, just as Noel Coward began a 12-week tour of North Africa and the Middle East. Earlier in the war, Coward had come under attack from the UK press for avoiding danger by travelling in comfort to Australia and the USA. What he couldn't reveal was that he was actually working for the British government, fundraising down under for war charities, and in America, reporting back on that country's isolationist sentiment before the Japanese forced them into the war with its attack on Pearl Harbour. In 1943, Prime Minister Winston Churchill told Coward to entertain the troops, Go and sing. When the guns are firing, that's your job. On August the 29th, 1943, my father's job 
was to make sure Noel Coward and a senior RAF officer set off safely for southern Iraq. Later, on the same day, my father was taking part in a swimming gala against the army at a nearby military camp. Sunday, August 29th. Up at 6.30am. Saw Noel Coward off and Air Chief Carter. At 3.30pm, got Carter to Lancer camp for the swimming gala. Sat around till 5.30pm and Army General Pownall came. First race he saw was two lengths and I, an RAF bloke, won easily. Best time of the day. It was like pulling teeth for them to announce it. Got ten shillings, chip for naffy from Pownall. Congratulating my father on his swimming success didn't come easy to the army organisers. But the evening before, General Pownall had found it easier to thank Noel Coward at the end of his second very successful concert after a gruelling day spent visiting the sick in hospital. As he left Baghdad, the popular entertainer faced yet another challenging day. After a three-hour flight... He landed and endured a bone-shaking drive in exhausting heat to his destination. He then performed two concerts for the troops. Here's Noel Coward's reaction to the warm reception he received from the audience revealed in the diary he kept of the tour. August 29th, 1943. I gave a concert in a large hangar to several thousand men. This made everything worthwhile. They were tremendously enthusiastic and all consciousness of heat and discomfort and tiredness dropped away from me when I reflected that they had to endure all that I had to and worse, sometimes for over two years. I felt ashamed that I had grumbled for a moment, even to myself. The next morning, August the 30th, the entertainer's relentless schedule continued. Again, he was up at 6am for a four-hour flight to RAF Habania. More hospital visits, a reception and two more concerts, one of which my father saw, having flown there especially. Monday, August 30th. Went to Habania on the duty run. Had dinner, then went to see Noel Coward at cinema. Back to mess and sat drinking till 11.20pm. Bed at 11.30pm in my bunk. According to Noel Coward's diary, when he started singing in the Habania cinema to a packed audience, so did the birds nesting in the building roof. It was so loud he thought the microphone and speakers were playing up. After a post-concert party in his honour, he got to bed at 3am, only to be up again at 6am to head for leader in Palestine, now Israel, and a rare day of rest. One of the songs Noel Coward recorded just before his tour was Don't Let's Be Beastly to the Germans, a personal favourite of Winston Churchill's. It was a satirical poke at people being too tolerant to the enemy. But some didn't get the joke, thinking the song was pro-German. Coward received suckfuls of abusive letters. And the BBC banned the song after one airplay because the lyrics contained the word bloody. At the end of the tour in autumn, 
Noel Coward returned to the UK with, according to his diary, renewed pride and hope for his country. Decades later, it's hard to understand what a big deal Noel Coward's tour was for the troops in somewhere like the Middle East, a relatively forgotten theatre of the war. I asked author and Professor Emeritus at Guelph University in Canada, Sky Gilbert, how important a figure was Noel Coward and who encouraged him to go to entertain the troops and what must it have been like for them to see his show in 1943. It must have been amazing. And there's no doubt about, he was a great entertainer. I mean, he wasn't so much a great actor in the traditional sense, but he was a great entertainer. And and in the sense that he his timing was great. He loved being on stage. People loved him. Uh, and he brought a lot of love to his performances. So that would have been very much there. Yeah, so Winston Churchill said to him, Coward said, I'd really like to be a spy. He had it all planned out that he was going to spy and and he had the vision of himself as a spy. And Churchill said, no, 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 no. You do what you do best. You go out there and you sing and you dance and you entertain the troops. That's what you do. And so he did it, right? He sang Mad Dogs and Englishmen, I'm sure, like one million times. I mean, I think that people underestimate him very much as a writer. Noel Coward is was highly underrated as as an artist up until the 60s. And even now, um, there's a tendency to think of him as, uh, you know, just a comedy writer, just a funny guy or just a personality. He was uh, one of the greatest playwrights and most influential playwrights who ever lived in, in my view. Meanwhile, at Baghdad Airport, my father was preparing for the departure of General Pownall as a critical battle raged and a significant war anniversary occurred. Friday, September 3rd. Up at 8am and had breakfast. Ron Campy came in Blenheim to take General Officer Commanding Pownall off tomorrow to catch Cairo plane. Our forces have landed in Italy. Fierce fighting in progress. The RAF is battering northern France. We have been at war four years today. It is a day of national prayer in Blighty. It was the sixth national day of prayer during the war. There will be one more before its end. War production was briefly halted as the BBC broadcast church services attended by thousands around the country. Previous prayer days were linked to a number of positive events for the Allies, the successful Dunkirk evacuation in 1940, as well as success in North Africa. And shortly after the sixth day of prayer in 1943, Italy surrendered. But deliver us from evil, for thine is the kingdom, the power and the glory, forever and ever. Amen. General Pownall was on his way back to the UK to reluctantly take up the job of assisting Vice Admiral Louis Mountbatten who had been appointed the Supreme Commander of the Allied Southeast Asia Command. Defeating Japan was the goal. During a month in the UK, he and Mountbatten went on a round of meetings, including one with Prime Minister Winston Churchill, who Pownall described as ageing, repeating himself a lot, 
and listening less than ever. In October, the two senior military leaders set off east for India. My father does mention Mountbatten, but it was only once he had landed safely in India. Friday, October 8th. Up at 6am, shaved and dressed, then out on drome. Very shitty first thing. Had breakfast and made up pay books. Held pay parade. See pictures of Mountbatten now released. What the operational records show is that three days earlier, Mountbatten had passed through Baghdad en route to Delhi. The record also describes how a friend of my father's, pilot officer Durrell, was one of the pilots flying the Hudson aircraft on which Mountbatten and his entourage were passengers between RAF Habaniya and Baghdad. As the aircraft made its landing approach, weight was desperately needed at the back of the plane. Durrell ordered all the passengers on board to go to the rear. Not recognising him, he ordered Mountbatten to sit on the lavatory seat. The story probably made Durrell the butt of a few jokes, reflected in how someone had recorded the incident in the unit's book. It was headlined, Mountbatten Mounts Throne. But once the plane touched down safely, Mountbatten had no time to rest. Waiting to greet him was the British ambassador, who wished him off to meet the Iraqi boy king, Faisal, and the prince regent, the king's uncle and guardian. But when Mountbatten arrived at the royal residence, only the prince regent was there. No King Faisal. Here's Mountbatten's diary description of what happened. My faithful flag lieutenant arrived, bearing an enormous box of chocolates as a gift for the King of Iraq. Since His Majesty is only eight years old, this appears to be the most popular form of gift, but I was very angry it was brought in after we had discovered that the King was in Jerusalem as I had naturally begun to hope to be able to eat the chocolates myself. It took Mountbatten and his entourage a total of five days to fly from the UK to India. When he finally arrived, the news photo my father mentions shows him being met by some military leaders, General Gifford, Air Chief Marshal Pierce, and General Auschenleck. Updated information since the war about Mountbatten has revealed that around this time the Americans started digging into their allies' appointment, concluding that Mountbatten and his wife were, in quotes, persons of extremely low morals. But I was surprised about the other senior military figures who also appear in the picture. Gifford was eventually sacked by Mountbatten for ineptitude, while Pierce was sent back to the UK because he was having an affair with the wife of the other person in the photo, General Auschenleck. What a group. Throughout his diary, my father mentions various VIPs, prime ministers, diplomats and royalty, that he saw close up. Bringing up three sons, he always told us, you're no better than anyone else and no one is better than you. I wonder how far this egalitarian attitude my father taught us was reinforced by seeing such rarefied figures during that sweltering summer of 1943 
in Baghdad. To find maps, photographs and other material associated with each episode, as well as the complete diary with my research notes, visit the website blightythankgod.co.uk. The diary extracts are read by Ron Chapman's eight grandchildren. He'd be proud of all of them. <laughs>